you like what you're hearing, put your money where your media is by subscribing to independent podcasts like this one. Go to lauraflanders.org slash membership. And thanks. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real models of shifting power from the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, politics, and activism. Back to school and back to the work of making education better. This week on The Laura Flanders Show, it's that time of year. I'm joined by educators and education activists Natasha Capers, Jose Luis Vilson, and Adam Sanchez to talk about educational justice, teaching in Trump times, and taking stock of the current state of public education. It's all coming up on The Laura Flanders Show, the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Welcome. For many across this country, September means back to school. From teacher uprisings demanding fair wages to student uprisings demanding an end to gun violence, 2018 has felt like a year of upheaval when it comes to education and maybe even transformative change. As students, parents and teachers get back into the swing of the new school year, we're going to ask today how transformative change can happen in the classroom and why that is so pivotal. While the Trump administration's agenda seems still to be to weaken public schools with, among other things, yet more charters, more virtual schools, more profit-making, what is the place for education activists who defend the principle but continue to push for change and justice within the public education system? To delve deeper into what all of this means, I am happy to welcome my next guests. Natasha Capers is the coordinator for the New York City Coalition for Educational Justice, Adam Sanchez is an educator, editor of Rethinking Schools, and an organizer with the Zen Education Project. And Jose Luis Vilson is also an educator and the author of a book, This Is Not a Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. He's executive director of EduColor, too. Thank you all for being here. You're Thank all you. busy people, particularly this time of year. 2018, who, who wants to lead off? Where do we find ourselves? How has it been uh, in the area of education, good, bad, ugly. We've seen some amazing stuff. Who wants to start? Jose? Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. 2018 has been really interesting. Uh-huh. Um, interesting good? Interesting good, I would say. Um, because for me as an organizer, upheaval is good. It shows the will of the people, the power of the people, and really where are the lines in which people are not, are willing to just say, you know what, mm. we can't anymore. Mm. So we saw a lot of that this year from the teacher, teacher strikes across the country yeah. um, to student walkouts, New York City, other cities and other states, to even work that we've done in Coalition for Educational Justice with rallies and protests and pushing, taking over City Hall, pushing the administration around culturally responsive education. Like, it's been a year of pushback from the people, um, and I think it will only continue. Mm. Adam, you want to add to that? Any lines in the sand worth raising up? Yeah, I mean, I, I also have a positive outlook for 2018 because I think the, the strikes we've seen, I mean, these statewide strikes, which are really unprecedented, um, have really transformed the conversation we've been having about schools, right? Um, before 2018, it was about 
testing and charters. Um, and I think these strikes have really transformed the conversation to be about funding, which in so many ways gets to a lot of the, the, the heart of the matter, um, the defunding of public education. Um, I think it's also been a brush of fresh air uh, for the labor movement as well. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that this could possibly be a turning point. Um, we've seen, you know, a really steady attack on public education for decades now um, and a slow building since the recession as that attack has intensified, so has the fight back. You know, we saw it with um, teachers in Madison, Wisconsin. We saw it with the Chicago Teachers Union strike. And now it's erupted on a different scale. Mm. And Jose, it seems as if our schools and what's happening in them and around them is becoming part of the community. I mean, is this kind of like a social justice model of, of organizing? It's not just staying behind school boards. And it's about time. And you think about how we've forever tried to figure out what it means to be public. Mm. And there's been this whittling away of what it means to be public, what it means to be a democracy. And I think marginalized groups have always said, hey, folks, look at what's going on over here. Look at what's going on over there. And the general zeitgeist in America has always said, well, maybe not really because we still have hope in whatever we perceive as the American democracy. And now it's very much like, oh, snap, there are people who don't actually believe in the things that we thought we believed in. So we need to actually discuss what it means to be America, what it means to be public, and how we can be more inclusive of all these marginalized groups who otherwise didn't have a voice in our most public of institutions. And it's given voice for folks like me to say, hey, let's educators, let's actually put ourselves in the game. It is no longer acceptable for us to be apolitical because it, we are a political agents. We are part of this work. Parents uh, have to be engaged. Community members need to be engaged. Students need to have a voice in this. I mean, our founding fathers, so to speak, were real young at the time when they were governing an average age of like 22 or 23, if I'm not mistaken. So these are things that are real prominent and it's good for us to have the conversation, but not only that, but then to take action mm. upon it. So let's define some terms. When we say educational justice, what do we really mean? Adam, you want to start with that? Sure. I mean, for me, educational justice means uh, uh, redistributing resources, right? Um, from, you know, right now we have an educational system where, uh, like our society, the resources are concentrated at the top. Um, and, you know, if you look at where Bill Gates sends his kids to school, uh, right, it, it's a very different kind of education than where, you know, the majority of public school kids in this country go to um, and the education that they get uh, uh, day by day. And so for me, educational justice is a redistributive component. Um, and when you're redistributing, you have to talk about um, racism in this country, right, because the racism is built into um, the inequitable distribution of resources resources in this country. Um, so it's also uh, a racial redistribution mm. as well. And how has educational justice been affected under the Trump administration? With all the positivity we just said, notwithstanding, Betsy DeVos has been at it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I think Betsy, well, let's be clear, Betsy <laughs> DeVos is not great. Uh, she's, you know, clearly a privatizer. She is, you know, um, but I, in some ways, I think, you know, Arne Duncan was in some ways more savvy about using the federal government um, to uh, be a hammer for education, right? In some ways, the Republicans kind of states 
rights issue has really kicked it. And Obama also, and towards the end of his administration, kicked it to the states as well with the new um, the ESSA Act. Um, and so a lot of these battles we're seeing really, you know, DeVos is, is absent from them. They're happening on the state level, um, which, which is a good thing because I think anything she puts her foot into is going to be bad for public education. So more continuity perhaps than change? Yeah. I will say that as much as you know, Bessie DeVos as, you know, head of federal department of education is problematic at best. Um, mm. What happens at the presidential level is even worse, right? Because um, rhetoric oftentimes have, has more of a negative effect than policy, right? So listening to this president talk about immigrants, Mexicans, um, black students is just as problematic as the policies, mm. right? So and listening to him talk about schools, I mean, he kicked off in his inaugural address talking, well, painting pictures about public schools as if they were just sort of sites of slaughter. Yeah. Violence and crime. Right. And but then you learning anything. But you also have him talking about, well, you know, Mexicans are rapists and murderers and, you know, they should the wall. And then what happens is it trickles down. Right. But when we think about bullying, typically folks think about it as a mean kid picking on a weak kid. Really what it is, is that it's a microcosm of the bigger society. So when you see your president talk badly about an entire group of people, then that is what the messaging that children take in as well. So the effects have actual real-time effects on how even students interact with one another. I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show. This week, we're back to school with a conversation about educational justice, as in, what is it? With me, Natasha Capers, coordinator for the New York City Coalition for Educational Justice, Jose Luis Wilson, education activist and author most recently of This Is Not a Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education, and Adam Sanchez, educator, teacher, and editor of Rethinking Schools. He's also an organizer with the Zen Education Project. How do teachers come the effects on students of the negative rhetoric coming out of Washington, let alone the ever-increasing pressures of privatization on their schools. Yeah, from the back porch, back then with dreams of a stack fortune, black kid with dreams by any means to see some cell phone keys to a black portion, that American pie, he just won a portion, product of that environment that he was forced in, changed course when it's out of control, fill it down in my soul, fast forward and foresee that fork in the road, listen, mention you want a road for Car whipping, it's mind bending. Open your eyes, I'm bending the rules. Time ticking, the time's different on a globe where every soul trying to survive in it. That's the that's the main concern. Whole hood celebrate when the tables turn. Could it be by Black Milk from his album Fever, released on Mass Appeal? For our New York tri state area listeners, how about joining us in person for a special screening of our recent reports from the United Kingdom, where a down on its luck textile town in Lancashire has been turned around by an Ohio model of community wealth building. Followed by an informal discussion, that's Monday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m. at the Brooklyn Commons Cafe on Atlantic Avenue in partnership with the Next Systems Project. I hope you can make it. For more details, sign up for our newsletter at lauraflanders.org. Now back to our school discussion with activist Natasha Capers, Rethinking Schools organizer Adam Sanchez, and educator and author Jose Luis Wilson. We're seeing educators pushed from apolitical to political, 
in facing the effects of austerity and so much more. But my question was, how do teachers, parents, and students come together so that no one's standing alone? You're in the classroom. I mean, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? I think more than anything, you know, all these seats seem to have a power not just with policy, but also with the cultural zeitgeist, right? When President Trump was elected, I remember so many of my kids, and, you know, my kids are predominantly Dominican, but we also have Central and South American kids. I have Mexican kids, Ecuadorian kids. A lot of them came in with, in tears, a lot of them just on their cell phones trying to contact their family members, making sure they're okay. Like, uh, they, they started to get knowledgeable about what it means to be an illegal immigrant and all this other uh, very con- controversial and downright dehumanizing language. Mm-hmm. So when, I, when I'm in the classroom, it's very much about affirming their own identities and making sure that they're included in the space because I recognize that as a teacher, I'm not just representing myself as Jose Wilson. I'm representing an agent of the state, right? And I think that's a crucial element to the work that we do as public school teachers is saying, yes, we may represent a larger entity than ourselves, mm-hmm. but we also have to transmute the, and yeah. transmit the, the conversation and talk more deeply about what it means to be American in this country. And then if we're not satisfied with that definition, we need to be able to move it forward. So over the summer, a lot of kids might have been seeing on their vacation the pictures of the separated families and those kids with hoods coming into their neighborhood detention centers. What were they making of all that? Any sense? It's, it's, they're, they're scared. They're scared. They're downright scared. And a lot of them have reached out to me. They'll say, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen with my dad? What's going to happen with my uncle? Um, Any number of things. And, you know, even when you have a a governor that pronounces himself to be democratic, like a Governor Cuomo, right? Like, there's only so much he can do Mm -hmm. if if we don't do things like, for instance, abolish ICE. Have communities themselves come together and say, this is not acceptable, this is not tolerable, and we need to be able to push back in a real strong way. So we've heard the word cultural a few times. Let's talk about culturally responsive education and what it actually is and why it's so important, why it's so pivotal. Culturally responsive education is so much more than the heroes and holidays. So we can celebrate Cinco de Mayo and Juneteenth. And it's like, first of all, y'all don't even celebrate those things properly. (laughs) But what it really is, is a holistic way of viewing children, respecting children, their families, and teaching in an honest and responsible way. So when I say that, it's about one, decolonizing our own thoughts and practices as parents, students, and educators. Who am I in this role? How am I teaching as an agent of the state? What am I projecting, mm. right? And how do I stop my own thoughts projecting on those students, right? How do I value the cultural backgrounds, languages, traditions of the students who are in my classroom and their families? And then also zeroing in on curriculum that is truthful because so much of our curriculum, especially social studies, is actually not truthful. So how do you do that? I mean, Adam, there's probably there are a lot of new teachers going into the classrooms right about now. Maybe they've been there for a few weeks. So many of them go in with a lot of aspirations and 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 confidence and belief that they're going to be able to make a difference in these kids' lives. And then they're suddenly in a world of tests and, 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 you know, teacher's notes and dealing with schedules and rules and, and a curriculum that they haven't really had any role in, then they might be alone in their school that's fighting cuts. I mean, I could go on. But how do we, the community, help that teacher that, that might be feeling pretty lonely right about now? Right. 
Well, I mean, I think the first thing you know, for teachers is we've got to find allies. If you don't have teachers in your school who you feel like it could be allies, maybe it's teachers within your city, maybe it's parents. You have to find allies to be able to survive as, oh. a, as a teacher in this system. Do I hear union? <laughs> right. Or hopefully your union, right, in some places should be doing that work and, and helping teachers find allies. But I think also it's about directly addressing the issues that are really important in your students' lives. So one thing that, you know, that I know, you know about what Jose was just saying of teachers coming back into the classroom this September, we have to address these separations of families, right? right? These are things that our, our students are already talking about, that are already being affected by, um, and we have to teach it, right? And so uh, amongst you know, the conversations I'm having with teachers um, and I've had over the summer are, are how do we address this yeah. in the classroom? And how do we front load it and start it in a way that says, look, we value your lives. We think you can really be an agent of change in some of this. And so let's discuss what's going on in our country. Right and can now. you do that if, I mean, what if you're in a school that isn't up for that, that, that you don't have, you know, institutional buy-in, Jose? I, I think for me, it's, it does start with the classroom and the experiences Just that students have. Uh, you, you must, you must. I, you know, the one question I have as a math teacher is, how do I get my students to see themselves as mathematicians? Mm-hmm. And that's really what it is. And I think about folks like Paolo Freire, but I also think about uh, Bob Moses, who was an organizer in the civil rights movement, but then he comes and says, I got to rethink the way we do math in this mm-hmm. country. And too much of our conversation around social justice is like, we got to do social justice to children mm-hmm. and not right. with them and pull them in. So you mentioned Paolo Freire, the, the pedagogy of the oppressed. What do you pull from that? More than anything, it's really about trying to build students up so that they have enough self-confidence to say, I'm a mathematician and I can do this in the ways that I do it. And for me, in my classroom, as long as it's complete, consistent, and correct, then I'm good. So if they have multiple ways of approaching this math, then I'm happy, Mm -hmm. right? And people say, well, you got to do a social justice project here and do it there. Great. Fine. Bring it all in. And, you know, there are definitely a billion resources out there. But really, it's about getting students to see themselves as competent and, um, and human mathematicians in the work that they're doing. If you're listening to The Laura Flanders Show, I'm Laura. This is our Education Activists Back to School special with Jose Luis Wilson, education activist and author of This Is Not a Test, Adam Sanchez, who edits the website Rethinking Schools. They're both teachers in the New York City public school system, along with Natasha Capers, coordinator for New York City's Coalition for Educational Justice. All of them agreed that allies are key in surviving the current inequities in the public education system, especially where it comes to meeting the needs of a more diverse student population. Next, I heard about how the activism is paying off when it comes to New York City's recent commitment to culturally responsive training and just what that might look like. We'll be back right after this musical break. His Brownouts rendition of Don't Believe the Hype from their album Fear of a Brown Planet, released on Fat Beats Records.
let's talk about what New York City has done recently. $23 million to give teachers new sorts of training around bias, around cultural responsiveness. Yep. What form does that take and what is that like for teachers? So for over a year, Coalition for Educational Justice have been fighting, organizing, and advocating yes. for this to happen, even to the point where having to take over City Hall at one point, right? Especially when in February you have a white teacher in the Bronx who steps on the backs of a black female student to teach about slavery, and which is about absolutely, here. <laughs> literally, right. which is unnecessary, right? And so we're really happy to see it as a first step. It's happening in three parts. One, in um, uh, 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 leaders from across the city, um, that being superintendents, principals, and field support staff, um, getting together and have a two-day training there's um, work happening with folks who have become trainers to help spread this work and give support to schools. Um, they are having four-day trainings. And do these and, trainings work? I mean, some people go through anti-bias training, and it's like a multiple-choice test mm, on a computer. Yeah. Right. And then, well, and then teachers, sadly, are getting one-day trainings, an implicit bias, right? And so the research shows that when they're done well, their work. CJ has always advocated for anti-bias training that is deep and ongoing and connected mm. to pedagogy or your role in that school community. Whether it's you are an administrator, if you are the lunchwoman, whatever it is, it has to be connected. And that is the missing piece at the moment is that it has to be deep and ongoing. I can't just go and I can't go to anti-bias training and be like, okay, well, teach me everything about not being racist today. <laughs> Before four o'clock, right? Before four o'clock. Because if we could like undo systemic racism and one, eight hour sessions, I think we would have done it by now. No, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, <laughs> I really want to follow up with that too because it also connects to the issue of teachers of color in New York City and the decimation of our profession. So, so too often I find that teachers of color are in the lowest third, I guess, poverty. So you have poor, medium, rich, right? And, you know, our schools right now, our poorest schools have about 50% white and the non-color staff. But then as the schools get richer, they get whiter and whiter in their staff. And it's not to say that folks who are white can't be conscious about this work, it's, but it's very much, it seems to me that, you know, we have an issue where the people want to do this work. We're at the highest rate of folks, you know, of people of color coming into our profession, but then they also leave. And it's not just because of pay, it's because of the way that they feel in the schools. Like, they're the only one who are doing the social justice work. And if those folks, those folks who are out there who are actually trying to do this critical, conscious work, um, they need to be thanked more often because yeah. often they're on an island in a very big way. Mm. And often they tend to be the marginalized folk who recognize it immediately. Our Muslim uh, teachers, our uh, Filipino teachers, our, te- our black teachers, obviously. Like it, it just spans the, the, the yeah. spectrum. So those are conversations that need to be had and the right people need to be in there and supported well. So a couple of questions. Are students and parents involved in any of this trying? training? Currently, we are in communications with Department of Education around the trainers. The trainers have started, but there has to be more work done on the part of the city. The mayor has to take responsibility. This lies solely on the mayor. He wanted to have mayoral control. He continues to fight for mayoral control. He has mayoral control. So take the control, Mm -hmm. right? Really say that as a city, we prioritize making sure that our teachers are trained to the best of our abilities to take this on. Mm. And we will accept nothing else and then also create the right environments so that we can start to do the, the work around curriculum. The fact that we're talking about family separation, 
that has a historical context, right? Slavery, Native American um, boarding schools, um, Japanese internment camps, that has a historical context. How are teachers gonna go in and really set that up and be able to talk about those big concepts, the topics, and dig in without stepping on the backs of students once again? Changing the curriculum would be a part of it. I want to bring in some other people when we're talking about the we on this program we often talk a lot about um, the commons and the idea of the commons or we talk about it some you talk about it in your work education being part of the commons public education specifically can you just give us that lens on these stories just a little bit right I mean I think what what the kind of corporate education reform is moving towards is really you know looking at education as a commodity yeah. right is that that can be you know bought and sold by by consumers right and looking at students and parents as consumers right um, and and what you lose when you view education like that um, is the the transformative possibility of public education for developing active citizens were you right? transformed in school do you feel I absolutely, I was transformed in school. I mean, I, you know, I, some people have negative, uh, you know, uh, experiences in public education. I had a very positive experience in public education. Um, I had some, you know, teachers that I feel like really helped, um, me come to political consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and that was really, you know, helpful in terms of my (laughs) development. Yeah. Same. I mean, but I also went to school at a time in District 23. I'm from Brownsville, Brooklyn, still am. Children live there now, go to school there, um, where I saw myself in everything, right? My teachers were black. If They, they were black American. They were Caribbean. They were Afro-Latinas. They were Hispanic. They ran the gamut, right? So, And I saw myself in the te- in teachers, I saw myself in staff. I saw myself in administration, and so all the way even up into high school. And I saw who I can like. If I was like, if I'm gonna become a teacher, I could actually not just see myself as being the art teacher mm-hmm. or the music teacher or the gym. Te- right? I'm like, oh, I can do any of these things. Miss King does that. Miss mm-hmm. King teaches, you know, all of the globals. I can do that. Is there a teacher you want to sh- shout out to, Jose? Gosh, I mean, how, how many? You know, um, I had this this teacher, Mr. Connolly, in eighth grade, and it's interesting because Mr. Connolly, um, like he he was a young Irish guy, came from uh, Boston. He had just graduated, and he came to um, a, a low, you know, a, a very low income school. But the the things he taught me about not just uh, English and language arts, but also about how to speak in front of someone, how to be uh, unafraid to get up and speak my truth. I mean, those are things that are real powerful. All right, so shout-outs to teacher. I'll shout-out to Flora McDonald, who was red-baited out of the United States in the 50s, mm-hmm. came to the U.K. and was one of my most influential teachers. Thank you all. And thank you if you're teaching right now or going off into the schools. Thank you for your work. And thank you, all of you, for, for coming in. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank I'll you. have it again soon. I hope more. For more information on all my guests, go to lauraflanders.org. And if you have one of those smart speakers, simply ask Alexa or Siri to, quote, play the Laura Flanders Show podcast and subscribe. We recommend a good binge listening session to pick up your spirits. Prefer to watch? Follow on YouTube. We have our very own YouTube channel. For our fans around the tri-state area, how about joining us September 24th in person at the Brooklyn Commons Cafe for a screening and discussion about our recent reporting from 
from Preston, Lancashire, you can follow on social media and sign up at our lauraflanders.org website to get all the details. Next week, a focus on Puerto Rico, a year after the hurricanes that decimated the island. People responded. We'll hear how. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay curious. I'm Laura Flanders. Thank you.